name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please be seated. If I've told you this story before, listen again. This is a story that I will start with this morning whenever I hear this gospel reading. As a young parent, as young parents, the first thing you notice about your child is how much you love them. The second thing you notice is when they cry, you kind of panic and want to help. And there's surely something wrong and you want to help them to stop crying. It's just a difficult thing that if you've never been a parent, it's, it's like one of the first things. What's wrong? And so in the middle of the night after the baby starts to sleep, it's really difficult to not get up and go see what's going on. And we have a monitor, we had a monitor back in those days. And really quickly, after a few nights of that, eventually you develop a language and you say, you know, let's let her try to work it out. And so we would, you know, we didn't invent that, by the way. Some doctor told us, if you don't sleep, you won't be good parents anyway. And so, sure enough, you hear Vera crying, Mama! And the first couple nights, it was almost impossible, and Elizabeth went in, and, you know, and eventually, I would say, let's let her try to work it out first. Okay? And so, it started to work. But there were times when it was harder than others, and one particular night, same thing, crying, Mama. And I, I kind of just automatically reached over and said, let her work it out. She said, okay, I'll try. Let's, let's let her work it out. Pull the covers back over and I go over. And for the first time in Vera's life, she said, Daddy! <laughs> I popped out of bed, jumped over the dog, kicked the door, almost fell down the stairs and nothing was going to get in my way. I swooped her. I saved her. I said, Daddy is here. <laughs> Next morning, my wife said, let her work it out, huh? <laughs> Pursuit. This is the word I want you to take away when you leave this building today. You're going to take this word with you back into your Sunday and into your week. Pursuit. That's the word that we're talking about today. God's love for you, for the entire world, has to be understood with this word sort of centrally mounted in there. Pursuit of you. His love compels him to pursue you. It also answers the question of what is God's love like? What does it look like? And this word is situated perfectly alongside our reading of the gospel today. It also reminds me of that great movie in the 80s, the classic, Raising Arizona. And if you know this movie, there's a phrase in there where they, they used to talk about the early, early days of being in love, where pursuit was mutual. And if you've ever been in love with somebody, you know these days, they're called the salad days. The early days of pursuit. It's mutual. This is also a really big part of the love of God for us. Pursuit. He can't help it. So let's jump right in. First, it's important to remember, it's always important, who's Jesus talking to in the gospel? And today, uh, he is talking in earlier in chapter 15, we see that he is being listened to by tax collectors and sinners. So people who are bad and do bad things. Nobody likes them. 
But we're also told that the Pharisees were listening in. They're the religious elite who lived according to the law. They followed the rules, unlike sinners and tax collectors, right? So they're listening in. And they're not happy, and they're already muttering things like how Jesus welcomes sinners, and he eats meals with them. They're already on edge. So you have the sinners on the one hand, the religious elite on the other. And the story of the prodigal son, or we could call it the story of the lost son, or the two lost sons, or the lost sons and the loving father. People have wrestled with how to properly entitle this. This is one of three parables in a row. And the idea of pursuit is at the forefront of this teaching because in each of the parables there is something that's lost that needs to be found. And it's a huge part of the Christian story. Have you ever been lost? I know everybody has at some point. I want you to remember what it was like, especially if you were a child and you got lost. Do you have a story? Because it can be, a, it, I remember being lost at FedMart. FedMart doesn't even exist. In Houston, Texas, four years old, lost at FedMart. And it was terrifying. Everybody's bigger than I am. I was a short little thing anyways. I don't remember much about it, but I do remember the moment that my mom got there. You remember the moment of being found when you were lost? Or if, as an adult, maybe you got lost on a hike. And that moment where you realized, oh, there I am. That's three mountains over from where I thought. There's relief in there. Whether you're a kid lost at the store or an adult lost somewhere else, being found or knowing that you are found and safe is huge. So I hope that doesn't happen to you very often. But Christian hope is based on this idea that God sees us in our lostness and seeks us out, has always sought us out, left the safety of his throne in heaven to pursue each of you and me. That's why these parables were even spoken in the first place. And if you remember, the first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. There's a sheep, one sheep from the flock is lost, and the shepherd goes out all night looking for it, and it is found, and he rejoices, and he calls his friends, and he says, rejoice with me. What was lost is now found. And then the second parable, the lost coin. A woman loses one of her ten coins, turns her whole house upside down, finally finds it. And again, like before, she rejoices, calls her friends, rejoice with me. What is lost, what was lost, is now found. And so in our parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son, the story begins with very clear imagery of the younger son. He asks for his inheritance early. And that would have been like asking for a whole third of the family land, most likely. And it would have been a very, very disrespectful thing towards his father. I mean, if I did that today, my father would kind of laugh. And he'd say, why don't you go get me something to drink? <laughs> but back then, it was a whole different story. It was like saying to the father, I wish you were dead already so I could get my share of my stuff. And in this very patriarchal Middle Eastern society, such an insolence of a son wouldn't have been met with a chuckle or a go get me a drink. It might have been met with physical violence. 
an ejection from the family. But the father doesn't respond that way, which is very odd. The father carries out the wishes because he loved his son. And so what happens here is a couple of things. There's this loss of honor that the father goes through on the one hand. He loses honor and he's rejected by his son. Both of those things. But he bears it and he doesn't lose affection for this son of his. He loves him. And so we read, the son goes off to a faraway land and goes, spends everything on stuff that you shouldn't spend your money on. Things, uh, the, the economy tanks, and he finds himself face down in the mud with pigs, starving with nothing, wishing he had enough, even as much to eat that the pigs were eating. And for a Jew, in those days, that was a very big deal. So he comes up with a plan as he's in the pigsty. He's going to go home and he's going to ask his dad to become a hired hand, be one of the servants, knowing that he didn't deserve it. So he turns around. It says he, he turns back. He gets up and turns back. Remember this. This is imagery of repentance. To turn back means to turn away from your sin. And that's what he does in this moment. He physically gets up and he turns back. He's repenting and he goes home to the father. So he goes home and meanwhile, the father is waiting, but he's out on his front porch looking. And one day while he is out there, he sees the son coming home. He sees his son approaching. And you know, if I could, I would play some dramatic music. I should have gotten with our choir earlier. Dramatic music, this, this is the climax of the movie in some ways. Because, you, you know, you get Charlton Heston in, a, in this clip, and you get the son, and Charlton Heston sees him, and the music builds, and he does not wait. He takes off across the dirt. And I have to tell you, remember who we're talking about. A wealthy, dignified landowner doesn't run for anyone. Children won't run. Women in those days may have run. Even young men might run. But an old, dignified landowner isn't running for anybody. And his legs were probably poking through his robe. None of this makes any sense until you ask, what is, what's going on? He loves his son. He loves his son and he goes to him. He races towards him. And before the son can say, Father, here's this plan I've got, the father rejoices. He embraces him. He orders his best robe to be put around him. And what that meant in that time was immediate restored standing into the family. It's like the father was saying in that gesture, I'm taking you back before you pay off what you owe. I'm not going to wait for you to grovel. I'm not going to wait for you to make the appropriate apologies. I don't care. Let me hold you. He puts a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. The fatted calf, the biggest calf is prepared. And the greatest party the family's ever seen is called into order. And just like the first two parables, he says, rejoice with me. Come and celebrate. What was dead is alive again. What was lost is found. This is a powerful image of God's love and God's pursuit 
of the whole world, in spite of our sin, in spite of our defiance, and despite of our sometimes outright rejection of God. God ran to us and runs to us long before we are worthy. And so back to our story, the sinners and the tax collectors, all that group listening to Jesus, their jaws probably hit the ground, knowing that they didn't deserve any bit of that kind of love from anybody. Because there's love, there's grace, there's forgiveness. But simultaneously, there are the Pharisees. I wish I could have seen their faces. Well, Jesus did. And that's why he continued with the second part of the parable. The, the older son was the good son. The good son who followed all the, the, the rules, like the Pharisees, right? He had done everything right. He had always been, always been obedient, followed the law, everything he was supposed to do. But what was his reward? In this moment, that older son is angry, so furious. Once he's told that the father's thrown this giant party for this loser, younger brother of his, in his mind, he refuses to go in. So immediately we see him doing what the younger son had done before, disgracing and insulting the father. You see that? By not going into the party that his dad called to order, he's insulting and disgracing the father and the family further. And what does the father do? He goes out to look for the older son, like he had done for the younger son. The response is the same. He pursues the older son at the expense of his honor. He left his guests that he invited and threw a party to celebrate with. He leaves them inside. Yes, that's a disgraceful thing to do. But he doesn't care. His son is more important. But back in those days, a patriarch just wouldn't do that. Furthermore, the older son insults him even more in how he addresses him. Not respectfully, not let me tell you something, Dad, but demandingly. I've been good, I've done everything right, and you've never done anything for me. As if the father owes the older son. Let me tell you what you're going to do for me. Here's what you should do. Here's what you haven't done. And the father's response is, son, you're always with me. All that I have is yours already. But we have to celebrate. What was lost is found. Your brother who was dead and gone is back. He's alive. And just like that, the parable is over. It's a quick end. But we know that the older son stays outside. Now this to the Pharisees would have also had their jaws on the, on the floor had they not been so self-righteous. Because it was pointed square to them. A critique of them. It said that the bad son entered the feast, but the good son did not. In his book, The, the Prodigal God, one of my favorite authors, Tim Keller, and he writes a little excerpt. Listen to this, how he sums this up. The hearts of the two brothers were the same. Do you realize then what Jesus is teaching? Neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. 
This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from Him either by breaking His rules or by keeping all of them diligently. Back to pursuit. The greatness of this story is that the love that the Father has for His children compels Him to pursue them both. To go out, to look for them, to race to them and be humiliated in this act of love. As we approach Easter, when we get to Holy Week, remember this moment. Because Jesus himself will humiliate himself, allow himself to be humiliated on a cross between two thieves on that Good Friday. But it's also Jesus who comes to seek you and me out. I wonder where you find yourself in the pew this morning. I wonder where you might have find, found yourself in that story. Sometimes I'm the older son. Sometimes I'm the younger son. Sometimes I'm a guest at the party trying to figure out what's going on. But I want you to hear this. There will be a time in your life, and it may not be now, and if it is, hear this even more. There will be a time in your life where you're screaming out, during the day, within your body or in, within yourself, there'll be a time at night where you're screaming out, Daddy! And you're calling out to the Lord who made you to come help. And I want you to do that, knowing that the Father who made you loves you in this way and will pursue you right where you sit. So where are you this morning? Where do you find yourself? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.